Welcome to COVID Lawcast. Tonight, we have Charles Coves from Australia, and we're going to learn about what's been going on in Australia. Charles has practiced law. He's also been involved in business, and I'm going to let him explain his background, if you would, Charles. With pleasure, Warner. Thank you for the invitation. And I like talking about my favorite topic, which, of course, is my background, like most of us do. But more <laughs> importantly, when I'm teaching somebody, and this is a little clue, if you want to teach somebody public speaking, and I've done this exercise many times in public, I'll say, who wants to get good? Who's terrified of public speaking? I will ask them. And then I say to them, who would like to get over their fear of public speaking? And hands are up. And I say, who's the most terrified in the room of public speaking? And I'll hopefully find that person. And then I will invite that person up on stage. And then I will get them and say, I'm going to get you to speak in public. And they're clearly terrified, but they don't want to be terrified. And then I will then I will get them to tell me the story of their family. Mm. No preparation needed, and they just talk. And at the end of it, I say, there you are. you just spoken in public in front of a large audience. And how was it, audience? And every time it's compelling because it's a unique story. So yeah. my unique story is I, was a, I practiced as a lawyer for 20 years from 73 when I graduated from Melbourne University with an honours degree in law. Then I got a master's degree in law. I was a tax business lawyer. And then in 1993, I was always interested in ongoing learning. And that's another issue, Warner. This question of the need for ongoing learning. So I kept ongoing learning and then did a two-week business school class in Hawaii with Robert Kiyosaki. And Robert Kiyosaki is now well-known globally, but it was a two-week personal development course focused on business and then it was after that course a day after i completed that course that i decided to change career i left the career that i loved to become a professional speaker educator motivator and my brand is australasia's passion provocateur so i provoke people now and have done so for now 29 years in fact it was june of 1993 that i left my profession suddenly had no plan of leaving my profession and for 29 years now i have spent my life inspiring provoking educating people to discover and pursue their passion because in my experience when you pursue your passion when you're passionate about your work you'll never work another day in your life and when you are passionate about something you have literally unlimited energy to pursue that passion so i've been i've written two books co-authored another two books i've spoken in eight countries around the world and then on top of that um i'm ceo of an industrial hemp company i'm consulting as a legal strategist so i don't have a practicing certificate as a lawyer but i give but i but i advise people on strategy if you like, I'm an interface between lawyers and clients because neither of them understand each other. Mm -hmm. With my wife, we have a business in dental practice management training. That's a global business where we teach dentists how to run practices better. And then I consult on marketing issues for various clients. So, <clears throat> so I'm 
exceedingly busy. I have five children. I've been competing in triathlons for 35 years. So I'm a sports nut. And one of the, the key element, what binds together all the work that I'm doing, including industrial hemp, is freedom. And the law, Water, in your work as a lawyer, in my work as a legal strategist, the, it is the law that preserves our freedom. And then hemp is a way to make farmers more successful so that family farms are profitable and sustainable because if everybody lives in the city and it's corporations running farming, then we are at grave risk of losing our freedom, our independence and, so, and passion. I, I teach people to be free to pursue your passion. And then lastly, in terms of health, that it, if you are not healthy, it is very difficult to be free. The best example, of course, is if you're in hospital because you're unhealthy, then you're not free at all. And so that's that idea of freedom really ties in everything that I do, that as human beings, what makes us human is freedom. Without freedom, we're not much different to animals. So that's that's the philosophy. Plus then I'm on the board of six charities, plus I've got five children, plus I exercise every day. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> You're setting quite an example. I'm not sure I can uh, match that. I only have three kids, by the way. I do have two grandkids, though, new, new grandkids. So I'm very happy to be a grandfather these days. Congratulations. Yes, I've got two grandchildren with another on the way in three months' time. Well, congratulations to you. They are something, aren't they? <laughs> you have been uh, so active in terms of organizing, I, I guess one way I would say it is organizing conversation around COVID-based issues, legal issues, medical issues, and, and make, helping people to make connections you know, within that group of people who really stood up, most of them stood up very early on, and I know many of them felt alone. Your efforts, for example, helped connect people together who may have been feeling alone and really really created a synergy that is driving a lot of activity worldwide at every level for people who are fighting for freedom, fighting to maintain democracy, fighting the real failure of the science and medicine and even legal establishments. So could you talk about how you made the decision to stand up and, and to do the work you're doing related to the COVID crisis? Yes, well, it is interesting. I've been involved in this now for 10 years. Why? Because eight years before the COVID crisis hit, I was helping another lawyer as a legal strategist, and he was helping parents whose children had been damaged by vaccines. Now, I promise you 10 years ago, and my children are aged from, from 40 down to 11. In fact, one's turning 40. My oldest is turning 41 in July, so it'll be from 41, 38, 36, 36, and 11. Mm. Now, all five of my children have had have been vaccinated. I'm not, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. And until this lawyer friend of mine brought to my attention the work of Ann, Dr. Andrew Wakefield. I'm aware and, of Andrew Wakefield, sure. And the, and the Vaxxed movie and Bobby Kennedy's work. And the fact that since 1986, 
pharmaceutical companies are indemnified for any against any liability for damage to children, by the way, only children under the 1986 Act. I was not aware of this, Warner. And so as soon, so so for eight years prior to COVID hitting, I, I was horrified. And I ask parents even now, how many, how many vaccines does a newborn child these days have to have in Australia? And most people think it's five or six because that's people our age. That's, that's all that they got. Yeah. Today yeah. in Australia, in the first four years, it's 43 vaccines, given as single, double, triple or quadruple. And, when, and, and this, this is horrific and there's been no safety work done on this. So that when COVID comes along, I knew straight away what this was about. And I made a decision that the most important thing that I can do is to help people fight back against this because I consider government response on COVID to literally be an existential threat to humanity. Yeah, I, I believe that as well. I'm, I'm, I'm increasingly concerned about impact on fertility and then the numbers of injured that I'm seeing in my personal life and in my you know, contacts, people contacting me through the firm, it just seems overwhelming. I, in, I have three people that I know that had uh, cerebral hemorrhages and died post-vaccine. Three, that's yeah. personal to me. And that's, uh, and that's never happened to you in your life, has it? No, no, I've heard, I had a friend who had a mild stroke recovered. I had another person who I knew had a cerebral hemorrhage, but he recovered. That was years ago. And it was some problem with an artery, but not this, not so quickly. And, and then on top of it, what I'm seeing is there's all kinds of more minor issues that people are having. I'm, I'm just focused on the people I know, you know, from brain fog post shot to physically being tired, mentally being tired those are much lower down, but it makes you wonder long-term if the shot is affecting the mitochondria and sapping your energy, is that what's happening? I don't know. I mean, and you've had some- We don't, we don't, we don't, we don't need to know all that. that your, your experience is very important to people. They say, oh, that's, that is just anecdotal evidence. No, it's not. It's your life. Right. And it's happening to everybody that we know. I've been to three funerals of people who up until December last year were totally healthy. Three funerals. Right. And two, and, and two of them die, you know, they're allegedly dying of COVID, but they're not, of course. But, but these people are all jabbed. We're all jabbed. And it's very difficult to say to the family, I believe that your loved one died because of these jabs. And so these groups that I'm... Yeah, twice a week, I'm, I moderate these global discussion groups. I'm involved in a number of other groups. And the conversation, Warner, it's kind of you to say, the conversation helps people to be encouraged. And encouraged is an interesting word, isn't it? Because- Yes, courage, yes, yeah, absolutely. Courage we tap in internally, but encourage is the external form of courage. And coming along to a meeting and hearing the stories that you just shared of people and you go wow that that just might trigger somebody else's thought to go gosh I wonder if that person died of the jabs and 
every, it seems to me, and Bobby Kennedy in one of these conversations that I moderated, Bobby Kennedy Jr., he said, you know, for people who believe these vaccines are safe, and, and just last week, one of the speakers made the point that using the word vaccines for these gene-altering technologies was a masterstroke. Yeah, right. Because government has, has taught us that vaccines are good and safe. And so having made this decision of this existential threat, then no time, like, like you know, I'm, I'm getting close to 70 years of age now and I'm working 70, 75 hours a week and I'm running these businesses and all of the work I'm doing on COVID is all unpaid. But the presenter, I think, was Alex Craner and he tells the story of Theranos where George Schulz, former Secretary of State, was on the board, Henry Kissinger on the board, and these people involved at the highest levels of globalist influences from Trilateral Commission down. This board of Theranos backs this Elizabeth Holmes with this blood analysing technology that, you know, you take a prick and within 10 minutes you've got a total blood analysis. Well, it was a total fraud. Right. And Alex Craner brought to the attention and it was one, it was one Wall Street journalist and five internal whistleblowers like your friend who you were talking about before from Pfizer, who brought the whole Theranos edifice down. And that's what one person can do in our society. Now, Bobby Kennedy has been saying it. We know that, you know, his, his book is a bestseller. It gets no coverage in the mainstream media. But the fact is that each one of us speaking up makes a difference. So that's why I do what I do. Describe for the audience all the different things you're doing around COVID. I mean, the group is phenomenal. I, I you know, I'll just let people know I've attended multiple uh, times and every time I've come away enlightened and inspired just some incredible people are just on that on a very regular basis. And I wish I, I apologize, Charles, I, I'm not able to be as regular. So talk about that group a little bit and what you've yes. seen come out of that group and then what other things that you're doing. Well, this group is called Medical Doctors for COVID Ethics and, and, uh, and a Welsh doctor, Stephen Frost, uh, started the group because he didn't know what to do, so he decided to start the group. And then I was an early participant, and then he asked me to be the moderator for the group to make sure that it functioned well. And, you know, one of the questions that we might talk about, Warner, is how do you make a group function well? Because that's what I do in my <laughs> professional speaking. We'll get to that in a moment, because it's quite, quite difficult, as you know. Yeah, I do know. And, and so, Stephen... Stephen sends invitations out to a significant number of people and there's anywhere between 70 and 200 people on each of these calls. And these calls go for two and a half to three hours, twice a week. Now, the reason, and I have not missed a meeting since about October last year. And the reason why I can do it is because on Mondays, the meetings are at 6 a.m. Australian time and Wednesdays at 5 a.m. Australian time. So it's a shocking time to get up, I promise you. And so, and so at this meeting, so Stephen sends out these invitations. He gets literally, as you say, some of the best experts on the planet. I happen to have a list of them here just to get people excited by the list. 
Uh, we had Stephanie Seneff this morning, Dr. Peter McCulloch, Wolfgang Wodarg, a German member of parliament, Todd Callender, who you know well, Matthew Errett, E-H-R-E-T, a Canadian writer, philosopher, Judy Mikovits, who's been a wonderful, courageous whistleblower, Dr. Lee Leap from Truth for Health, Daniel Estulin. Now, Daniel Estulin is an amazing commentator. He sold 8 million books. Now, I, I've, as an author, I'd love to sell 8 million books. Um, Kevin Corbett from the UK, Daniel Nagazi from Canada, Rainer Fulmik as a guest, Jesse Romero. So the list goes on and on. Jessica Rose, Dr. Paul Merrick, Mike Yeadon, the former VP of Pfizer, David Martin, who's running a major case against the US government. So Steve Kirsch was on the 23rd of February. Andy Kaufman, very controversial, Dr. Andrew Kaufman, who says that viruses don't exist. So it's uh, Professor Michelle Shosodovsky, the Professor Dolores Kale, and Ryan Cole, who's standing for election. So there you are, the list goes on. So and, and I'm going to mention Pierre Corey because he's one of my favorites. He was on there as well. I saw his. <laughs> I've he seen was. many. I actually have seen many of those on there, and I know a number of the people that you mentioned. That is one of the things that's happening is we are we are forming uh, new connections and new friendships worldwide through this process. And I think, you know, and I do want to get to your question about the groups, but I mean, it is amazing to me at what I see as a, a rebirth of freedom. It's not an easy birth, but it is coming. And I, I guess that's what keeps me hopeful because the talent and the ability of the people that are coming together is unsurpassed. You know, and we have, we basically have crowdsourced medicine, crowdsourced legal advice, crowdsourced economic advice. We're setting up some parallel structures. Crowdsourced nutritional advice. Nutritional advice. And it's good advice. In fact, mm -hmm. it's, it's factually based, unlike the pablum that we are being fed by the governments. So it's really fascinating to me to see people coming together who are honest, courageous, and smart. And they're setting up parallel structures so that they survive uh, what, unfortunately, I think many people think is going to be a big collapse of all the mm. traditional structures. You know, whether it's, you know, it's food, housing, travel, the parallel structures are being set up. And we have a client here who bought a hospital a year ago. So we're going to try to set up a medical center here in Ohio. And there's a couple of, of projects like that. I know there's a project like that in Columbus and, and also in Ohio, just so you know, we're also really going to blow up the education system. I mean, people are literally exiting the education system. COVID's the trigger, but there's a lot of other things that are going on that people are really unhappy about. And, and we're starting to set up parallel education systems already. It's already happening. But I, I guess, so two things, I guess. One, what is the secret to keeping a successful group going? Because I do see, and this, this, you know, so I've said the good, but here's a little bit of the bad. We have different groups that have come to the fore in Ohio, for example, and I have seen a little bit of infighting in them. And I'm wondering, how do we get past that infighting? And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm very much in touch with pretty much everybody and friend, friendly with everybody. So I help bridge the connections. But how do we, how do we avoid that kind of infighting that happens and the ego sometimes that gets bruised in the process? 
Excellent, excellent, crucial question, Warner. <clears throat> and it's the same question that the coach, who was the coach of the Chicago Bulls? Pat, what's his name? Was it are you, Pat Riley? Is that who you're I thinking? Pat that? Riley. Yes. Um, it's it's what the, the question that every sporting team coach asks: How do we get a group of different thinkers to work well together? Same with these groups that I moderate, and so. There are two key principles. Number one is that you are a weirdo. That's right. Yeah. You, Water. <laughs> I know. Are, think in weird ways. Yeah. And and we've heard it often said that each one of us is unique, but we've heard it so many times it doesn't mean anything. But when I get a group together, and my thinking around this is that each one of us thinks in weird ways. And if we'd let our deepest secrets out into a group, they'd all be shocked about the weird things that each one of us believes. And the reason why that is so is because the way that our, that our minds work, we have a subconscious mind and a conscious mind. Not one of us was brought up in the same way by parents or by institutions and so the, the experiences that we have accumulated since being in utero, this is from in utero, in our subconscious minds is unique. Not one person has been brought up identically to another. And that would be the case even if the person was a Siamese twin. Okay, so, so you then start to go, hey, each one of us is a weirdo. So that's the starting point. And therefore, if anybody agrees with if anybody agrees with me, it is pure happenstance, a pure fluke. So to expect agreement is, is a failure to understand the human condition. That's number one. So once you start looking around a room and you go, I've got a bunch of 50 weirdos here, how do I bring them together? The next answer is in the Old Testament of the Bible. There's a beautiful saying, I can't remember which book it's in, without a vision, the people perish. Mm, yeah. So those two principles. So here we've got a bunch of weirdos. However, we have got a vision. Our vision is freedom. That's what this Medical Doctors for COVID Ethics is about. Yeah. About fighting for freedom. And so there's another corollary of the without a vision, the people perish. And there's another principle that says, when one thing unites us, it overcomes all of our differences. And so you go to a sporting, you go to a major baseball, major basketball match, and all of these weirdos barracking for the Chicago Bulls are suddenly best buddies because they're barracking for the same team. When one thing unites us, it overcomes all of our differences. So the job of the leader is to create the thing that unites us so that the crap around weirdos disagreeing disappears. And then as a moderator of groups, that's what I'm constantly looking at. And even today, there was passionate discourse with Stephanie Seneff. And at the end of it, I said, look, it's great how we're passionate, but we're coming from a space of care and love and a deep spirituality because this group is based around ethics and morals and principles and values. And so get off your high horse. And, and because each one of us knows so little, and Warner, you mentioned this, what was the awesome group think it was, you know, we've got our own mastermind group for each topic. 
Mm-hmm. And so, and so when you come from this space of we're all fighting for the same thing, then there's an excellent chance that the differences get swamped by the vision of what we're fighting for. That's the answer. You know, you're reminding me, I was just with this group yesterday in Columbus, and one of the things I said uh, to the crowd after the young lady who was vaccine injured spoke so eloquently with such difficulty was that I, and, and the entire crowd agreed with this, there is no way our country should leave people on the sidelines who've been injured like this without getting them the help they need. And I didn't have one person disagree with that idea. You know, so you're just giving me some ideas about what's working, you know, in terms of unifying. We were certainly there for freedom and health freedom and uh, to discuss the horrible overreach of government. But when we heard from a vaccine injured person who took the vaccine, we agreed as a group. And I can tell you in that group, there were liberals there were moderates, there were conservatives, there were religious, there were non-religious, there were black, white, you know, all kinds of races that had united around essentially fighting the mandates and health freedom. We all thought that this young lady needed our help and that we needed as a society to be helping her. Mm. So you're kind of making me think about an interesting way to break through. And, and, and then whenever, whenever such a group comes together, yeah. which is what I try to do when I'm moderating, to say, welcome, everybody. This is what we're about, to remind people. And, and sometimes, dis, you know, sometimes some people don't like the rules. Sometimes people say, I don't like the way this meeting is being run. And I've said, and one of the things that Stephen and I, Stephen as the founder and I as the moderator, because I'm very experienced running these groups, I said, look, we have to have a time limit. We can't have meetings that don't have time limits. Yeah. People can't live that way. The, but the problem was that a couple of people who got big voices, they're retired. You know, they're, they're happy to sit there for seven, eight. Some of these meetings went for nine hours. I, I know they did, Charles. I never could stay on that. You know, I would jump in for an hour or two, then I had to go. I don't have more than that. Yeah, ever so. So the other thing, the other yeah. the other key strategy in a group, and I, I learned this early when I was president of the local school council, that that the parents were on this council, and then the school principal uh, made a decision, and a number of parents were upset about it, mm-hmm. and. They came along and said, we're upset about that decision. So take any decision someone's upset about. So I said, I said to them, excellent. We will discuss your upset. But first, before we can discuss the principal's decision around educational matters, could you please share with us your philosophy on education? Well, they were stumped. They didn't have a philosophy. And I said, well, you might be unhappy about what the principal's doing, but what's the philosophical basis for your objection? And the heat went out of the argument, just like it would in many cases. You know, if, if somebody says, no, no, we should, we should do this issue, and politics is a great example. You know, in Australia, we've got the same thing, Democrats, Republicans, but we've, at least we've got some minor independent parties. You know, people say the best way to run Australia is this way. Someone else says this way. The best way for America is that way. Well, prove it. You can't prove it. 
And then what happens is it takes the heat out, doesn't make it personal. It goes, wow. And the other, the other big issue is in the in that we we're talking about it before you started recording, Warner, is how little we actually understand about the functioning of the human body. It blows my mind when I speak to expert medical people. I say, to what extent do we understand how cells function? And any wise expert will tell you less than 5% do we understand what's going on in each one of the cells. And so walking around pretending that you know is such a crazy idea. And then I find, then we, we're more able to care about people who express opinions different to what we've got. Right. So that's I'm dealing with you know, fraud in medicine and pharmaceuticals and hospitals. I was doing that before this crisis struck. So I was sort of ready to go. And, and uh, in that sense, in terms of my mindset, but what I always say about medicine is that what we're doing today in a hundred years is going to seem barbaric, period. No matter how good you think we are, just look yep. back a hundred years, because that's what they're going to be looking at us as. You know, it's completely barbaric. That's really how we're going to be viewed in the future. So let's understand that it's barbaric. That's why that saying do no harm is so important because we have to proceed very cautiously and very carefully with like what you said, our very limited understanding of life and how the human body works. I mean, we cannot create life, even though some people may think we're going to get artificial intelligence here soon but we cannot create life we, do, we don't know what the spark of life is and, and like you said we can only understand whatever five percent of a cell maybe but it's going to seem barbaric in a hundred years absolutely barbaric and i think and that's the other thing i mean this to me is the biggest medical mistake i couldn't even imagine a, a medical mistake like this except in science fiction you know, I read science fiction and William Gibson is one of my favorites. And he has a series of books where he talks about the, the jackpot. And I swear I, the, the man saw this coming and he really has written about it. We're in the jackpot. We've got kleptocracies as governments. And it seems like potentially we're going to have a depopulation because of all the vax injury that's going on. Yes, the kleptocracy and those who die, their assets will go back to the state. And the state is in a, in a position of great indebtedness. Right, right. Well, that's interesting, too. I thought about that, too, is just all the people who died who were receiving Medicare benefits, Social Security benefits. Heck, it helped the budget. Yes. It really did in this country. You can see it. And you, and you say, was it a medical mistake? No, I, I don't think it's a medical mistake at all. And I think it's... In, in, I think it's deliberate and I think that's what's going to come out and I think the legal ramifications of that Warner because I'm I'm really interested in unpacking you so you said first do no harm yeah now now the law of tort is applies in America and in Australia and in all you know English origin legal systems and the law of tort says you are not allowed to go around harming people or harming people deliberately or if you if you can prevent a harm and you don't and it's in your power to prevent it then 
your omission to act is just as culpable as the person acting. Now, in terms of Seinfeld, I'm a big Seinfeld fan. And did you did you watch Seinfeld at all? I, I, I'm not a, a huge television watcher, but I certainly like Seinfeld. Well, the last, the last episode of Seinfeld was a case in point where the four of them went up to Canada and they saw a fat guy in a car being robbed. And it's a salutary lesson. And there was the good neighbor laws passed in Canada. And so the Seinfeld and his three buddies are filming and laughing at this guy being held up, you know, in broad daylight. And then they were convicted of failing to prevent a crime. <laughs> I say that's what each one of us is called upon to do. There's a wonderful American who was awarded 47 honorary doctorates, more honorary doctorates than anybody. He died in 1983. Do you know who it was? I'm, I, I don't. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't think. Uh, Buckminster Fuller. Oh, sure. He had a lot of good quotes, a uh, lot of ideas about society. He was constantly thinking, yes. Yeah. Now, Fuller said, as a human being, your job is to do what you uniquely, what I would say weirdly, but uniquely will do. Yeah. Your job, Warner, and my job is to do what we uniquely see needs to be done. That's our job in universe. That's our job, said Fuller. And because each one of us is a weirdo, we see different things. And that's why, that's why small groups of people working, hey, how, what do we do about this assault on freedom, assault on American values, assault on philosophical base for the whole of Western civilization? What do we do about it? And some parents are taking their children out of schools. And that's what we're meant to do because having one global government, which is the agenda of the globalists, and I say deliberate, have one global government reduce the world's population to below 2 billion by what's happened here. I say that's the agenda because I can see that happening. Then Fuller, who I'm a big fan of, he says, well, you've got to, because you see it, you have to do something about it. It's a lovely call to action, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I mean, I'm here, but it's so, it's, it is so odd. I think I've expressed this in your group um, that, you know, I did feel right off the bat that this was a spiritual battle, which is very odd for me. I'm not technically a very religious person but I felt evil and I felt we had a spiritual battle and I, and it's not that I was called to it. I was literally shoved into it by God. I didn't feel any choice in the matter. It's just the oddest thing to be here and, and have that feeling. Um, I'm not, I don't, still, I haven't, still haven't unpacked it. I've had to go, you know, you had to go. Once you have that, you have yes. to go. You're, you, you have a, that's what, that's what, that's what Bucky's talking. That's what Bucky Fuller is talking about. You, you were impelled internally to do this. It wasn't, it wasn't somebody telling you to do this, was it? No, no. That's a beautiful, it's a beautiful example. And, and that's what I said. Like I, I went to this course in Hawaii with Robert Kiyosaki in 1993, yeah. I had zero plans. My, my game plan for the rest of my life was to practice law and to become a multimillionaire by practicing law. Yeah. And, and what, I, what then got exposed to me that my journey clearly was 
was to to head down another direction and now and now that because i can speak in public i can stand up i could stand up in front of a hundred thousand people and give a presentation yeah that that the skill that i've developed and more than i assume you've got this skill as well we have this skill and this insight and then and then we explain one piece of one piece of information about something that might be what someone is looking for and when i was listening to stephanie seneff talk about how cells communicate with each other think about how many cells you have in your body oh i don't know billions of cells it's 70 it's 70 to 100 trillion oh geez oh geez wow. now each one of these cells has got billions of moving parts in it so you've got 70 trillion cells and then you go well, how do these cells communicate well the way that I look at it <laughs> is that the Earth itself, our planet, literally is one organism, and you and I are like cells as part of that planet. Right. And I was listening to Stephanie with the pictures of the cells, and I was thinking, it's you and me, and we're communicating. We don't know what everyone else is doing, but the planet continues as an organism. Yeah. This has been a traumatic event for people, and we have seen... You know, in trauma, you see the disruption of communication channels. So mm. the history is suppressed and, and denied. We've just seen the traumatic model, which in your analogy of cells that were just cells, we've really seen a disruption of the communications between the cells that should have been taking place all along. And, and, and we are figuring out new pathways. That's, that's for sure. You're certainly doing that, Charles. Hey, one thing that we are so curious in the United States about is the Australian reaction, because, you know, we view Australia very much in the way we viewed our West. It's just a very free, very independent, very strong-minded uh, place. And it is hard, I think, for Americans. I'm not. I mean, obviously, we've we've got our problems here. We've got uh, our own idea of strong-minded business people or whatever, you know, and a good government. I mean, that's all out the window here as well. So I'm not trying to put us as any kind of paragon, but but I, I think that there are many of us who are shocked because we thought Australia would be a free place. And we, I mean, we're also we're shocked in our own country about the violations of freedom and the shutdowns, lockdowns, curfews, mandates, all of that stuff. But Australia just to, seems to have been off the rails. And let me tell you what I'm referring to. and Maybe you can correct me on this. But I've read about and, and seen videos of the of the camps where there's covid camps, you're you're spirited off to a covid camp. I've read about basically an electronic monitoring so you can only stay within what we call three miles or five kilometers of your home. The real hard limitations on travel, the really, really strong mandates without, it really seems like without the exemptions. I mean, in the United States, we have the First Amendment and the religious exemptions have been very strong and protected. Don't get me wrong, but it seems like Australia has been really harsh about that. Could you Talk to the audience about that a little bit. Yes, Warner, I think your observation is correct. Back in 1788, when, when Australia was formally, was formally established on the 26th of January, 19, 1788, so 
12 years after the US Declaration of Independence and, and it was established as a colony of the United Kingdom. Now, the majority of the population in those days, other than the Australian Aboriginals, the Indigenous peoples, and that's, we won't go there at the moment, the bulk of the population came from convicts who were shipped out. So Australia was a, was a place to put large numbers of prisoners. And so they were already thumbing their nose at society and then free settlers. And the free settlers were those, of course, imagine leaving the United Kingdom, essentially, you know, where everything's established and coming to this wild, wild west, same as America. Right. And, and, so, and so that population came up of people who, who were entrepreneurial, who were risk takers. And so that's, and then in 1850, the big gold rush, a lot of people, in fact, after the Californian gold rush, when that petered out, a lot of people came to Australia, a lot of Chinese came to Australia in 1850. So, and they were entrepreneurial, big risk takers. And so, so this, this population heads down this track of essentially anti-authoritarian. And by, not, by the end of World War II, Australia's population was only 5 million. Mm -hmm. Today, it's 26 million. Look at that growth from 1945 to now, from 5 million to 26 million. The, those first 5 million, entrepreneurial, anti-authoritarian, well-behaved. You know, no, this is not the wild. But, you know, they, if, if government made stupid decisions, they'd tell government to get stuffed. And since about the 1970s, the socialist agenda has been imposed in our schools, as it is in America, the same process as America. And I say water, it's the same process because it's driven by the globalist agenda of people who have had since the start of the 20th century, and you and I are now living through this, of teaching that the government is your family and that you let government make your decisions. And, and we will give you free money if you behave yourself. That's what I see has happened in Australia. And that's what I think has happened in America. And you've spotted it well. Most Australians have given away their freedom for the illusion of security. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's... We are dealing with the school issue uh, and, and we're dealing with those issues every day. Um, we're going to have something in Ohio. I mean, I, I, we're going to have something come up next year called a backpack bill. So whatever funds are with a student, whether you homeschool them or put them in regular school or put them in private school, those funds that are due each young person that you've paid in taxes, property taxes here for years, um, they're coming back to you. And they're going to follow the student about 7,500 bucks per kid. And you do anything you want. That's what's coming. Very good. In Ohio. So very good. You know, that, that, that conversation around education has happened in Australia as well, because there are government schools and private schools. Yeah. And so the argument is that the government should simply give a voucher to yep. the parents and you choose where to spend it. Well, and you're going to be able to choose as a homeschooler to spend it on your child that way as well. Mm. So you're getting it even if you're not in, you know, I mean, you're going to be 
you know, there's some requirements for homeschooling, obviously, but that really frees things up. So I think that's coming, you know, and this is where maybe the, you know, I mean, I, the, I guess, you know, I'm going back to your point that this is deliberate. So this is where the plan is breaking down because you just triggered massive changes in the electorate in so many ways. And, and not just me, but many people are predicting a Republican wave. Um, but it's not just Republicans. There is a war within the Republican Party over the what we would call the Chamber of Commerce Republicans who are- Or the rhino, or the rhinos. Or the rhinos, right. Uh, you know, our Chamber of Commerce has been particularly uh, obstructive in terms of trying to stop legislation that would provide for freedom, backpack bill, that type of stuff. So we know that fight is going on. And uh, there is an independent candidate running for governor this year in Ohio. I think he's up to 15%. And they're going to start attacking him very soon if he starts rising any more than that. I, I talked to him yesterday and I said, look, the attack is what's going to get you well known. It's going to be terrible and it's going to be hard to survive it. And you may not, but it's that attack that might get you in the winner's uh, circle at some point. So I did talk to him about that because he mm. knows it's coming. I mean, he's already been kind of forewarned a little bit. It, there's some legal issues. And I, I, of course, I offered to give some assistance. Am I right in that the religious exemptions, there's not really much religious exemption there? That's, that's correct. Our religious exemptions are nowhere near as strong as American, and I follow American politics very closely, and Canadian politics, and, and global politics. Yeah. And no, our, our religious exemptions don't stand for much, but, but the polit what the politicians do, and it's very, very devious what they've done, I don't know if they've done this in America, in Australia, on the jab, I don't call them vaxxers, on the jab mandates for COVID... They, they say, we didn't require companies to impose these mandates, but what government does is gives money to companies that choose to impose the mandates. Yeah. We found the contract with the uh, Department of Energy here in Ohio. The companies would get a million dollar bonus if they got to X percentage of people jabbed. Yeah. So that's so that's the way that they that's the way that they get around it, and they say we didn't force anybody to have the jab. Here's what it does, though. We're testing this legally. It, I mean, it's it's already on appeal, by the way. But if there is an entwinement, coercion, even a benefit uh, to doing something the government wants done, and that's directly related, the company or the school or the whatever entity that is accepting that benefit or that coercion or whatever it may be that at some point that nexus, it transmutes that company, that school, that entity into the government. Because if you're paying a company money to get people the jab, or you're paying a school system hundreds of millions of dollars to get your students to follow the mandates and get jabbed likewise. Or uh, you're paying churches to church, yes. remain shut and you no. give them money. Yeah. So it, it eliminates that difference. So when we sue that company, it's as if we're suing the federal government, which brings us directly under the Constitution instead of through the 14th Amendment, for example, is the way we would normally sue to get at those civil rights, to vindicate those civil rights. But so that's a we're, we're testing that right now. It's up on appeal. 
the first case like that here in Ohio. That's our legal process. What have you seen in the legal process there? Warner, I was about about to say, one of the things that every single person listening to this podcast can do ties into what I was sharing about Buckminster Fuller. And that is this. I want everyone to understand that they can be important whistleblowers or that they can be detectives to find the smoking guns. And I suggest that each one of us, we keep our eyes and ears open. This comes to the question of health because people say, I haven't got the energy. Well, I want people to understand that we're two years into a six year war. This is not just a little battle. So don't for an instant think, oh, I've just got to endure this for another few months. No, no, be ready for this to go for at least another four years. So set your mind so that you don't ever say to yourself, I've had enough. No, we are, this is our war. This is our war for freedom. And America and the UK went to war in world's war in World Wars one and two to fight for freedom. So this is a this is a long, much longer term than people want to do. And once you put your mindset on that, it's like running a marathon. You know, if you think you're only running five Ks and you've got to run 42 or five miles instead of 26 miles. You know, then then you won't make it. Now, the second issue, smoking gun water. And I, I really, you know, you might share an example, but one of the ones that really struck me was the Minnesota tobacco case, where there was one email, one one piece of correspondence from a CEO of a company who said, "We know tobacco harms people, but we don't care." And that was what convicted the tobacco industry. And what I say to everyone listening to this, there are pieces of evidence that if they send it to you, Warner, that might be the piece of the jigsaw puzzle that you need. And I want everyone to look for that piece. Thank you very much. We do represent whistleblowers. And I I will uh, tell the audience that we have had many brave whistleblowers come forward. And we have pledged to maintain anonymity if necessary, because we've been contacted from government whistleblowers, you know, people who work for Medicare and Medicaid, who have the death data, see the death statistics, because we know there's a real increase in deaths for those who are on Medicare. And that's the best data in the United States. Uh, You know, it's right there in the data that there's excess deaths in that population. And it's not because of COVID, it's because of something else, whether it's the shot or something else. Well, sudden, the, new, the, new, the new disease of sudden-itis. Yeah, sudden-itis, right. Sudden strokes, sudden death, sudden loss of whatever, yeah. So the whistleblowers are critical. And Brooke Jackson, the Pfizer whistleblower, is just a really critical component of this. I think, you know, she win or lose, her case is really still the tip of the spear. Her case matters, win or lose, because it's exposing, like I said originally, it's exposing the arguments that are being made. It's exposing a mindset that is depraved. Yes. And, yes. and, and I don't think, you know, you can see it in the writings, Pfizer's words. These are the words of these companies. They have no obligation to have a safe and effective product. There's no obligation for that. 
And all we've heard is safe and effective. And they are saying in their own writings, we don't have any obligation to make any, anything safe and effective. This was a prototype. It was a prototype shot. And even the delivery mechanism, how we get it into 100 million arms, it's a prototype delivery mechanism. But look, you know, everybody should look up these, uh, you know, and this, definitions. And, and, and Warner, this comes back to this question of tort law. Yes. That, in fact, every one of these executives, as a matter of common law in the US, just because there's no obligation imposed under statute, I say, and I say to you, that under common law, they have, a, they have an obligation to avoid harming people. And I think that's an interesting, I think it's a very interesting case to run that you didn't avoid the harm and you personally are liable for that. And there's all kinds of ways to do that from the willful behavior that we see, right? That I think we see to even reckless disregard of the impact of your actions to a uh, third way we say it here is being ostrich-like behavior where you just put your head in the sand and, and ignore stuff, you know, but well, fourthly, I was ordered to do it. Or, or yeah, well, that right. Well, I will tell you, these whistleblowers have already provided what I believe are the smoking guns. We are actually working on different pieces of information and how to bring them forward. Brooks is really the, the, the main, you know, her case is really something to watch. Uh, but there's other things that are going to come out. Um, well, one of the other thing that I did was I helped to establish two legal funds in Australia. And, you know, we're getting close to time here. Because yeah, yeah, we are. Late for you. Yeah. But, but just imagine in Ohio, just the, the state of Ohio, what's the population of the state? 11 million. Excellent. Just imagine if 1% of Ohio's population donated $10 a week to a legal fund. Right. That would be a million dollars a week. $10. And I urge you with your influence in Ohio to get someone to set up the fund because you're not doing this for the money, but you need money to be able to oh, operate. Yeah. No, you're, you're right. I mean, the money is a problem because you, you can't, uh, people do need to understand that. And thank you for bringing that up because people need to understand without money, it, it can't continue to run. That's the gasoline that runs the legal practice. We do have a mechanism through a group called Ohio Stands Up, ohiostandsup.com or .org. Uh, but Ohio Stands Up has been uh, critical in terms of launching Thomas Renz. Uh, that really led to the DOD information coming out. And Ohio Stands Up has been critical in terms of the cases that we're doing. They have, they've done all they can to raise money, but a lot more effort actually needs to go into it. You know, and your, your idea that this is a six-year process, tell me what you mean by the six years. What do you, what do you see that this is going to take six years? I picked six years because World War One was four years. World War Two was six years. I consider that having a scientific debate about, about COVID and, the, and, you know, the, all of the nuances of how the cells in the human body work, that's just one of 12 battlefronts, that the law is another battlefront, that 
the spiritual dimension that you touched upon is another battlefront, that there is a deep, deep evil permeating the planet and America and Australia. That's the globalist agenda. So there, and these 12 battlefronts are part of the globalist agenda, which is one world government. What is, what are the 12 battlefronts? Can you ramble them off for us? I can. So the first three are the medical scientific battle, the spiritual battle, the legal battles, all the different legal battles in court. Number four is the public demonstration battle, getting people out on the streets. So I think back to the 1960s with the race demonstrations. Number five is influencing existing politicians. Number six is finding is the finding new politicians as a battle to find people willing to stand up. Number seven is the is the new world is opposing the new world order, the great reset. Number eight is human augmentation, fighting transhumanism. Number nine is a new economic system because the current financial economic system is broken with the indebtedness of the US and Australia and most countries, this system will collapse. And so the digital assets, so that, that economic system is a crucial element. Uh, the next three I will find for you in just a moment. They're, they're, the, top, they're the top nine. Okay. And so, and so each one of those needs people who are, for example, you and I are not organisers of public demonstrations, but there are people like the truckies who can go out there and marshal and because they're physical workers. It's like carpenters versus you know, lawyers and surgeons. We each have different skills. Mm -hmm. And so because we've got, because this is all about this one world, one world government, and then the Yuval Noah Harari, Singularity University, Pia Diamandis and Ralph and Ray Kurzweil, they're all saying how wonderful it's going to be that they can insert stuff into our genetics so that we can be controlled. That's the game plan. And so I say that to think that as soon as we're free again, this is all over. No, no, no. The view of some people in our group, in the discussion group, is that they went too early. They went too hard. And now too many of us have woken up, Warner. That's why you and I, and you were, you were awakened. I was woken 10 years ago. And suddenly the fight for them to have global control over people has become much harder. Mm. Yeah. And food. I was, I was, food I just wanted, is, is food on your list too? The fight for food, the food fight. No, no that's, that's simply an enabler. Yeah. And by that, I mean, in a war, you, you go to war, you've got various battlefronts, but you need the food supply and the hospitals at the back to deal with the injured. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's why that, that, that whole administration of these battles is included in that challenge that we're facing. And it's a serious challenge. You know, there's just no doubt. The, the 10th battlefront is the propaganda battle. So there's how do we get the message out in a way that has an impact? And propaganda is a good word. Number 11 is restore the checks and balances in existing constitutional systems. The US Constitution has worked well. It's being corrupted. 
And then number 12 is oppose any social credit system, which the Chinese are imposing on their people. So the social credit system says, if you are not a good boy, Water, you will be wearing one of these bracelets you talked about and your credit card won't work more than three miles outside the radius from your house. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I just appreciate so much the thoughtfulness of everything you're doing. I think it's very helpful for us to have a list like this, to have, you know, to have a framework, you know, in the various discussions. I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, I've thought about, you know, everything on that list in one way or another. It's nice to have it lined up. Um, you know, so I, 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 thank, thank you. It's very kind. I'll, I've got a simplified version. And then I've got an extensive 25-page version that's got a number of legal elements to it, which I'll share with you as well. If you wouldn't mind, I would love to have that. Well, Charles, let's wrap this up. You've been so generous uh, with your time tonight. I I greatly appreciate it. This is going to go out to about 2,000 Ohioans, for the most part Ohioans. I know there's some that are on the list that are not. Many, many of them, I'd say about half of them are medical personnel because we have such a concentration in terms of helping the nurses, even doctors, all the medical personnel who've been under this horrendous mandate and horrendous pressure initially just from the mishandling of COVID and now with the mandates for the uh, shots. So your voice is really uh, a welcome voice. We have a saying in this country, you talked about the fact that this is not a short battle the quote from Thomas Jefferson, that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, something like that. I may have it off yes. a little bit. Uh, I've, read, I've, read two, I've read the most recent biography of Thomas Jefferson. It was amazing how the risks that he took and George Washington took and the, and the founding fathers of America, the, signal, the 56 signatories to the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Oh, Everything could have been gone. <laughs> Everything was on the line. Believe me, I, I'm feeling it right now in my own little way. <laughs> uh, but yes, the eternal vigilance, it does require a shift because, you know, I know people thought, oh, we'll get involved, we'll work hard and it'll be over in six months or a year. Well, unfortunately, this has been growing over time. It's been growing over decades. I think you Put a lot of it back to the 70s, probably before then. We've seen it with the growth of the national security state since the mid-50s and, you know, the presumably use of biological weapons in, in North Korea, which was hidden from uh, the public here for years. And then the assassination of Kennedy and King and, and, and Kennedy. So we've had a real problem. We know our country has been going off the rails, obviously, since the implementation of the national security state as more and more power gets concentrated there. Mm. So it's going to take eternal vigilance and it's going to be a big fight just to get our country refounded and, and yours likewise. And, and your podcast and this conversation, my aim in this is to, is to inspire one, two or a hundred people to become passionate about fighting that fight, to be willing to fight that fight. What's the most successful way that you've been able to break through to people who seem almost hypnotized by COVID and the narrative, the government narrative? What's the I think, success? I, I, think com- I think comedy. Yeah. JPC is. <laughs> I, think, I think we, and same with the woke movement, same with the cancel culture, same with the sexualization of kids at schools. Yeah. I think JPC is 
He is doing. He is doing what's called a pattern interrupt. I think that is a great way to do it. What's the uh, word? What, what did you just say? Patent interrupt. Pattern interrupt. Yeah. What does that mean? That means that if somebody is hypnotized, as most people are, in relying under what's called a mass hypnosis or a mass formation or a mass psychosis, there is no point giving them scientific data. You have to break the shell. You have to interrupt the pattern. And that's what comedy is. And that's why I'm chairman of the Australian Institute of Comedy. We didn't talk about that, but comedy is another crucial element in free speech and comedians are being hammered left, right and center. So finding comedic or animated ways to get one message across can just break the spell, then you can have a conversation. Thank you so much. I think you're right. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for being with well, me. Well done on all your work. It's been, it's been wonderful talking to you and I'll see you on the COVID-19 group soon. I'm sure I just, we're at a point where it's been very hard for me to get on there, but I will, I'll make an effort. So thank you again. We'll close this out. I, I, I appreciate all your time tonight. And I learned a lot, which I appreciate. <laughs> thank you. All right. Good night, Charles. Good night. Yep.